celebrating the journey rather than freaking about it, about getting to the destination as fast as possible. And it's, you know, it's the art of, it's the art of travel, right? Remembering the travel is an art. It's not, you know, not a work chore that you can speed up as fast. You know, it's about firing up your five senses and bringing your whole self to the journey, right? So that whatever it is you encounter becomes part of the the tapestry that you weave of that journey. Right? And I just think that if you do slow down, if you move through the world at a slower pace with a slow spirit, you, sh- you turn up with an open heart and a curious mind, then you can turn any journey, right? You don't have to be floating down the Nile. Or you can go any, any journey can become a bomb for the soul and a banquet for the senses. It's all there for all of us. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Well, you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. But on this podcast, we're going to introduce you to some of the folks leading that wave. Yes, it is still an amazing world. And I am here to tell you that we think that this narrative about the, about the doom and gloom is only part of the story. Here on this podcast and on this podcast mother website at The Goodness Exchange, you can hear about all the good that's happening in the world, the amazing progress, fresh insights and innovations going completely uncelebrated. And today we're going to talk to one of the people in this conspiracy of goodness that I'm always talking about, Carl Honoré. Carl is an amazing fellow who started at a movement a long, long time ago that now is becoming more and more part of our culture, more part of a thoughtful, helpful culture. Carl is arguably the founder and originator of a movement towards slower living that you may be seeing popping up more and more. Carl believes that Western, that the Western world's emphasis on speed is sort of eroding our health, our productivity, and probably our quality of life. He's written three books on the subject. One of them is, is going to be our primary focus today. But I'd like Carl to help me introduce himself just a little bit better. His first book is called In Praise for Slowness. The second one is called Under Pressure. And the third one is called The Slow Fix. They all three take a hard look at our modern culture of speed and then give us all kinds of fresh ideas about ways to find the right way to go through experiences. Some things do need speed, but others need us to stop and slow down to really enjoy the roses. His newest book, Boulder, takes on the cult of youth. And we're going to plan an episode two to talk more about that. But on this episode, it's about helping us maybe as a part of a New Year's commitment to living a better life. Carl is going to share with us his insights on slower. Just to give you a little bit about Carl's background, he is a highly sought after lecturer. And he talks about slow living all around the world and also a new topic about attitudes about aging. His work has appeared in publications like The Economist, The Observer, The Guardian, The Miami Herald, and The Houston Chronicle, Time Magazine, and The National Post. So welcome, Carl Honoré. I can't wait to hear how you can help us have a little bit more quality of life in the coming year. Your TED Talk has millions of views now, but there's a kind of an interesting twist on that we can talk about. I don't know. I thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. I want to also share with people a few other things that Carl's dabbling in these days. He's got a brand new children's book out and he has a wonderful story 
about how we think of the relationships in our life related to time as well. So in any case, Carl, thank you for joining the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast community. Thank you so much, Linda. It's a thrill and an honor to be here. I know we're going to have lots to talk about. Well, you know, just so people kind of get the scope of things here, besides an author, you're doing all kinds of things to help us all move past this culture of speed that we've having. You're a giant keynote speaker in the world, and you've also just done something wonderful with TED.com. You've created a course there, right? That's right. This is a new venture for TED. They looked around the world and noticed that people rather like masterclasses. <laughs> so they came up with their own version. And yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was amazing, really, to be asked to be one of the first people to make one. And my course is called, spoiler alert, right? How to Slow Down. And it's over four weeks. You learn in a like-minded community of Tedsters from around the world. So it's sort of social learning. And yeah, it's a lot of fun, a lot of filming, a lot of thought and brainstorming and back and forth thing went into it. But I'm very pleased with the way it's come out. And I'm excited to see it out in the world. And yeah, January 9th, 2023 is the first launch date. Well, great. You know, the reason why I wanted to mention that right at the top of our conversation here is that I really took a deep dive into your work in preparation for this conversation. And I had this overwhelming sense that we've got to get people as many connections as they can so that past hearing this conversation, they've got the next step and the next, because there is so much that you've created over this, about this topic since the TED Talk came out in 2005. Yeah. I mean, funny to hear you say 2005, because I realized suddenly how long ago it's been. But I mean, the, the ideas in the TED Talk are as relevant and as pertinent today as ever. In fact, even more so now, because over those last, whatever, 15 odd years, in some ways, the keynote of modern society has remained acceleration, that we are under even more intense pressure to speed up every corner of our lives, which means the flip side is that we need this slow revolution more than ever, right? So I find that I look back to 2005 and felt genuinely like a lone voice in the wilderness, you know, like a prophet stumbling, hairy and underwashed out of the desert. And now I don't feel like that at all. It feels like the slow movement, the slow philosophy with a capital S has gone completely mainstream. I can barely open up my inbox without hearing from a university student somewhere in the world doing a graduate thesis on it or a new person writing a book about it or a TV series. I mean, it's just, it's carved out a central place in the culture. Now, it is not the dominant driving force. Clearly, it's not. Acceleration still has the upper hand, the wit hand, if you like. But I think the slow revolution is coming. It's coming fast. Okay, so right off, let's just tell people that anything Carl and I refer to in this podcast episode will be on the Goodness Exchange in the article written about this interview. So just relax through this and you can you don't need to grab a pen. We'll be super thorough about everything new that you can go to to further your explorations into Carl's work. And then, of course, we'll probably stumble upon a million little outside links we give people to other good ways of thinking. So, Carl, let's start with this. You know, you've got this really nice way of helping us look at this roadrunner lifestyle that arguably has developed even stranger since 2005. And I think the timing is here right now for this concept. Not that it wasn't useful back then, but we couldn't quite see it. Maybe the pandemic has made it more visible to us, but now we're all wanting to have the good life instead of the fast life. Talk to us about what's happened in the culture that may be adding to this and how it's working in our own lives, and we probably don't even realize it. 
Well, I think we've been on an upward curve of acceleration since pretty much since the dawn of the industrial era, you know, with things getting faster and faster. And then every so often you get a great leap forward where the acceleration just goes up like a big quantum leap. And I think we've experienced one of those, or we experienced one of those before the pandemic with the arrival of social media and the way suddenly we went from being in the world free, untethered, undistracted to carrying around smartphones, right? To have a all of us with a weapon of mass distraction in our pocket, wherever we go, right? Which I think was a tectonic shift. And so that was already building up in the system, all of this steam and pressure. And then the pandemic hit. And I mean, the pandemic, I think, cut both ways. On one hand, whether we liked it or not, it was a kind of global workshop and slowness, right? It's, they forced us all to slow down. And it was funny, I found at the beginning of the pandemic, so many people wrote to me and said, you must be so happy about this, right? Everybody... And I tell you what, at no point have I ever been about the pandemic. Let me make that very clear up front, right? Total nightmare in so many ways for all of us. But I do think that even the worst nightmares often have a little silver lining in there somewhere. And I think what it what the pandemic reminded us of was two things. One, a lot of people were able to savor, to experience real slowness and found that it wasn't an ordeal. It wasn't boring. You know, it wasn't dull and tedious. It was actually kind of wonderful, right? You know, just simply going for a walk with your loved ones in the evening or that feeling taking away FOMO, right? The, just the joy, the way people could sit up a little taller and feel a little less weight on their shoulders because they weren't fearful of missing out on all this stuff because there was nothing to miss out on for a little while there. Uh, so I think that people began to reconnect with their inner tortoise a little bit in a way that surprised them pleasantly. So that's on one hand. The other thing I think the pandemic did was it reminded us or it, gave us the time and the space to ask big questions such as, who am I? What is my purpose in this world? What really matters to me? And I think what that question does is it pulls you out of yourself so that you almost have an out-of-body experience. You look down to the life you were leading before and you think, whoa, that what was I thinking? Right? And so we've come out of the pandemic and that's why you see so many people making deep, sweeping, seismic shifts in the way they live, the way they work, where they live, the kind of relationships they have, because they had the time and the space to slow down and pinpoint what was really important to them. And I think that's why we're in this odd post-pandemic moment now where people have done the existential homework. They worked out what really lights them up. Now they've got to try and figure out how to create a life that allows that to blossom and flourish. And that's where we are at the moment. It's a moment of tremendous promise and potential, but also a little bit unnerving as well, because what we had before is broken. It's gone. I think the pre-pandemic world is not coming back the way it was. A deeper changes have happened. Now we need to work out how to cement them and make them sing for us. That's such a great way to frame the opportunity up in the pandemic. You know, I think to your point there, any of us had the opportunity over the pandemic to like gracefully slide out of some relationships because we couldn't keep charging along and we didn't have to make any excuses. We couldn't keep going with things that we were involved in or whatever. And then maybe if we really consciously decide what we bring back into our life, we can include a lot less. In the first book, In Praise of Slowness, is the title in the United States. Everywhere else in the English-speaking world is in praise of slow, right? So riffing off the slow movement. And I always think of In Praise of Slow, it could easily be In Praise of No, because crucial first step to slowing down is doing less, right? Is saying no to the things that don't really matter to you. Because the flip side is that is you're actually saying yes, a big yes to the things that do matter. 
And it always reminds me of that famous quote from Warren Buffett, the investor, who said once that the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything, right? And I think in some ways that was the the moral and the lesson of the pandemic was that we were all carrying around like a big rucksack on our back full of obligations and duties and stuff that didn't really matter to us, but that we felt we had to do. And somehow the pandemic was this giant global get out of the jail free card where we could just step, you know, I can't do that in the pandemic. And then we were able to come back to the poker table and say, you know what, or the buffet table, let's think of it as that, because the world is an infinite buffet of things to do and experience. We came back to the table and said, you know what, I'm not going to load up my plate with 50 different things and then go back to my table and develop indigestion. I'm going to come to the table and zero in on the three things that really make my heart glad. And then I'm going to go back to the table and savor them. And I think that, I think that's become people's lens now is to think less is more, slower is often better. That is such a great point. Are there, is there some extrapolation, you know, I just have to go this direction because we're right here. I think it's, we kind of, both of us probably are referring to our personal lives in that, in this so far, but is there a way that we can keep some of that, those notions top of mind in our working life too? You know, people are looking for more work-life balance. Is there a connection there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I tend never to use the phrase work-life balance, to be honest, because I feel what it's saying to us is that work is separate from life. When in fact, I feel like work is just one component of life and that the way to approach that equation and reconfigure it in a way that works for you on every level is to arrive with the right mindset, right? Or the right spirit. And I call that spirit slow, which is to say, I come to whatever it is I'm doing, whatever moment it is in my day, whatever task, and I try to do that thing as well as possible instead of as fast as possible, which is really, when you boil it down, a super simple idea, right? But actually, once you do it, it just revolutionizes everything you do. And it's particularly potent in the workplace where the virus of hurry has infected every single corner of the day. And we find ourselves chasing the clock, even when it makes absolutely no sense to chase the clock. And even when we're not on a deadline, we're in deadline mode. So if you arrive with that one first question that you ask yourself, okay, what is the right speed here? How can I do this really well, enjoy it thoroughly and get the most out of it? Once you ask that question, it's a game changer, right? So whether it's writing a company report or conducting a meeting or a client visit or whatever it is, you arrive with that unhurried spirit, everything falls into place. And I imagine that that trickles down to relationships or collaborations with others. As far as that goes, I, I think this point that when I did my homework um, before this interview, I came upon this extraordinary point that just that you make that hit me between the eyes, both in our working lives and our personal lives. And certainly they both are the same. Great. That's such a great point. Okay. Speed and rage, how they're tied together. I never thought of this. You say somewhere, when speed is king, anyone or anything that gets in our way that slows us down becomes the enemy. Thanks to speed, we are living in the age of rage. That is so true in both. What if we're all angry in our working lives because we're not starting from the right place? If we're starting from this place that anything that gets in our way of doing things fast is an enemy, then we're already behind the eight ball. And the same is true at home as well. Talk to us about the speed and its relationship to rage. I think that the two are intimately, there's an intimate bond between speed and rage, between hurry and rage. 
I mean, even just thinking of being in a rush feels just hearing you describe that. I felt, you know, this is, we set ourselves up in this matrix where if anything presents any kind of slowness, we just go off on one, right? So it's, I mean, I, I was getting on the bus here in London last week and there was a queue of four people. The bus was a little late because of the winter weather and so on. And when it arrived, the person at the back was going to have to wait all of 10 seconds, just forced her way through to the front and said, and it was a kind of altercation. And, I just, and people were on like on a hair trigger. All, everyone got angry. I felt myself getting angry, even though I'm, you know, wander around the world telling everyone how wonderful it is to slow down and keep your head while all those around you are losing theirs. I began to feel a bit sort of enervated. And I think that we're, I mean, it's, I don't think we can blame all of our modern rage on speed. There are other reasons that we feel alienated from each other and ourselves, but I think speed's a big part of it, right? Because speed separates us, it destroys relationships, it isolates us, and so we're lonely. Speed means that we end up racing through our lives instead of living them. We're scratching the surface, so we're surrounded by so much bounty, so much affluence, so much promise of being our best version of ourselves and so on, that because we're stuck in fast forward and roadrunner mode, we never actually get there. So there's this constant gap between the expectations the society is constantly hurling at us and what we'll ever achieve when we're running around all the time like a headless chicken. And that gap is where a lot of that rage festers, right? Because we just feel like the promise is there and we're not getting it. We're not getting what is our due. And so what do we do? We, we get angry. We get peed off at people. I think it's Seth Gunn who says, rage and fear are contagious. And he has a nice little rap about how that works in groups, not unlike what you just described. Here you are, this guy who, you know, is living a life that's pretty calm, but you get on the bus with a whole bunch of people and they're all, all full of angst and you go there. It's... Ah. Well, we are social animals, as everyone says, and everyone knows, right? Yeah. And that means that we almost vibrate on the same wavelength. So if someone in the group is infected by either rage or fear or hurry, right? Because that's the other thing. We see this, especially in the workplace, that you can arrive at the office full of the calm of the Dalai Lama. You arrive with the best intentions to approach every moment of the workday intentionally and mindfully. And then all it takes is someone to come in all flustered and angry and shouting about a deadline. And suddenly you're infected by they're the same virus of hurry and it just courses through the whole company. So it, it's, yeah, we are, it's cool. I mean, that's the downside of being social animals, right? We fall yes. into the same trap as the people around us. Yes. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break and I'm going to tell folks about this wonderful new thing we've got going at the Goodness Exchange that can help them in their working lives. And when we come back, I want to talk more about this because you've got some great ideas about slow travel and slow, how tranquility works into your relationships and how going too fast causes us to react to people differently. There's so much potential there. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll keep telling people full of all kinds of new ways to think about slowing down. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the mothership website of this podcast is called The Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcast, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. But that's becoming harder and harder 
when most of us go to virtual work, and many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today. Because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with the tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Okay, we're back. And thank you again, Carl Honoré, for joining us on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. To catch you up, Carl is an amazing thought leader in the world of the slow movement that's happening. You may have heard of slow cooking, slow, slow travel, slow, just the slow life, slowing down and giving things the appropriate amount of time. Three amazing books on the subject. And you can find his work all over the internet. The book that got me very interested in this is one of his first books called In Praise of Slowness. And anything else that we refer to in the rest of this podcast, along with all his other books, are going to be in the show notes over at the Goodness Exchange. So join us there. Okay. So Carl, when we left for the break, we were talking about how this urge to just keep charging forward can make enemies out of anybody or anything that gets in our way. And that is an awareness that I think I'm going to probably think about all day long, every day. That's something I won't be able to unsee. <laughs> so thank you for that. But let's take it one step further, because it's something else that kind of relates to this is that we can have so much richer interactions with others. I'm not talking about our loved ones. We'll get there. But just the other people we come in contact with, how much are we missing as far as contacts that could be deep and way, bring way more loveliness and grace to our lives, but we're missing out because we're just zooming past people. 
I think we are socially, we are leaving so much on the table because of this cult of speed. The one thing that human interaction, any kind of relationship, even with someone you meet by your newspaper in the street or getting your morning coffee, those little touch moments of contact with strangers, all of those can only blossom with two things, time and attention, right? And if you arrive at those moments with neither of those, if you only arrive at them with a bag full of hurry, you're just, there's just not going to be a connection. There's going to be, if anything, there might be conflict because the other person might be expecting some kind of connection or you're suddenly you're on a different wavelength and you bump up against each other instead of slotting together. So one of the things people notice when they begin slowing down in any aspect of their lives and begin to bring some of that calm and tranquility and serenity, if you like, even to their daily movements through the world, is that they begin to feel like they're connecting more with people, just people that you meet, right? I mean, that's one of the joys of, of living. In, I live in a big city. I live in London, right? So we're surrounded by people. And it's so easy, especially somewhere like this, to be surrounded by millions of human beings, but to be completely alone, utterly alone. And I think speed plays into that. So if you slow down, you begin to turn those small quotidian encounters with strangers in the street into little little Fabergé eggs of human connection, right? I saw somebody the other day, I was walking through London and I saw someone, a tourist clearly, trying to working out a map or something. And I know that in my older self, like my before and after, my roadrunner self would have clocked that and just sped right on by. But I, instead, I, I stopped and asked if they needed help. And I turned out I knew exactly the place they needed to go because I knew that street. And so I was, and then we ended up having a little chat about the World Cup, the soccer World Cup, which is going on as we speak. And it just became a little, and I'll never see that person again. But that, I, at the end of that day, I looked back and thought, what is the one thing that lit me up today? And it was meeting that Slovakian, from Slovakia, tourist, right? Well, I'll never see again. And it was just because I, took, I slowed down with time and attention, and it lasted all of, who knows, two minutes, maybe? Tops, three? And here I am talking to you now. I'll probably remember him six months from now again. Wow. Okay. So I love something you said there just as a little thought exercise for myself going forward. I think I'm going to kind of really treat the end of my day precious since doing just sort of going deep into all the good news in the world for 10 years. I can be way more disciplined with what my mind focuses on at the end of the day. Because I've got so much nice things to choose from, thankfully. <laughs> so, but I really like this thought that what if the last things we thought of at night before we went to bed was what really lift, lit me up today? Mm. What really brought me a great deal of joy and, and um, maybe even an unexpected pleasure? And I could see that happening awful lot if we slow down and have the kind of experiences you just you just thought of that. Well, what you, there's a word there inherent to what you just said, which we hear a lot these days. And a lot of science looks at the power of this word this, and it's gratitude, right? It's being thankful. It's thinking about the things that brought us joy during the day, right? And that simple act of gratitude can have all kinds of neurological benefits and, and just uplift for our souls right. and our minds and our bodies and so on. And so people, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to leave gratitude and do it once a year at Thanksgiving, right? Why not make it part of your daily routine and, and ritual? And it can be just something as simple yeah. as a, taking a few minutes at the end of the day, a little quiet time on your own, slow down, and just say, look back over the day and say, what made this day better than the day right. before? Or, you know, what happened today that made me a better person? How did I make the world a better place? And right away, you just completely changed the chip <laughs> inside your head yes. and you set yourself up for a better night's sleep. 
and you're going to spring out of bed the next morning, I think more likely than crawling out, <laughs> feeling bummed out about what happened yesterday. <laughs> Yeah. And also, I think it would be just a little bit of a, you know, our brains are wired for connect to make connections. And I think it would be a way, it will be because I'm going to start doing it, a way that we can really make a connection to this slowing down as a habit is if we remind ourselves of the good things it brought us yeah. each day. Right. That's a, lo- that's oh, a lovely I, way. To, I, I, that's often an advice I give to people is the importance of remembering, reminding almost creating a ritual and it could be a, a diary or keeping a journal of some yeah. sort, or even if you just speak into an audio voice memo on your phone or just something that takes you back to that little light up moment of slowness during the day and reliving a little bit, tapping into the joy, the happiness, the, the zoom, you know, the boom it gave yes. you. And yeah. then, yeah. And then it becomes easier and more yes. predictable really that it will happen again. I think once you've yeah. embedded it by reliving it. Absolutely. Okay. So let's continue being a little bit practical about this. Talk to us about what you know about how this need for speed seems to be probably, there's some data now. It's been so many years. Is there data about how this need for speed is hurting our health or mind and body? Yeah, definitely. I mean, let's start with sleep, right? I mean, we know that people in modern societies are chronically underslept. We're just, we don't get enough sleep and the sleep we get is poor. It's low grade. And a big part of that is that we arrive often, we our head hits the pillow and we're still looking at the iPad, right? We're filling our heads with blue light. I mean, all the science is pretty clear on how that kind of living sort of marinated in electronic stimulation and distraction corrodes our sleep. And that, and sleep is the cornerstone. Good sleep is the cornerstone of good health, right? So without one, you can't, you know, the first, you can't have the second. So that's one thing. I think obviously the whole fight or flight response that we'll all have heard of, right? That if you, we need them both, but if you get stuck in that mode, which is what happens if you're afraid, if you're anxious, if you're angry, if you're fast, in other words, all those things wrapped up together. So, it, you know, it's going to be wearing us out in lots of different ways. We know there's a lot of pretty clear research on how working more than I think it's 50 hours a week, for instance, increases your rate of cardiac arrest and problems with the heart and the nervous system palpably. I mean, that's been shown clearly. So there are many, many things that we're sacrificing health-wise on the altar of speed. Okay. So part of the equation here is this taboo that we have to talk about, about taking time or making time. It seems like there's some kind of prize for being able to say how busy you are or how many few hours of sleep you got last night or whatever. I know I totally used to be in that mode. Talk to us about this, our society expectations. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the main reasons that we find it very hard to slow down is the deep and abiding taboo against slowness in our culture. That's slow is a four-letter word. It's a dirty word. It's a byword for stupid, lazy, boring, unproductive, many things that nobody wants to be. So I think that taboo means that even when we can feel in our bones that it would be good for us to slow down, even if we yearn to put on the brakes, we don't do it because we feel guilty or ashamed. We've just lost the habit, right? We're scared because we feel that we'll be scorned and looked down upon if we slow down. So I think that's one of the, weirdly, one of the main obstacles to slowing down is a cultural one, because we've created this culture that puts on a pedestal speed, busyness, all those things that have their place, but shouldn't occupy all of the, take up all the oxygen in the room. So this is the trouble, I think, you know, culturally, we, who do we look to and admire? It's, you know, Elon Musk, who sleeps under his desk. 
in the factory and so on. But although I actually think Elon Musk is a good example of how the tide is shifting, because when he took over Twitter, if you remember recently, he put out that infamous tweets telling people that he wanted them to stay on, work really hardcore, work crazy hours and stuff, fully expecting that they would all sign. And they said, you know what? Sayonara, mate. <laughs> Goodbye. Where's the exit door? We're not doing that anymore. I suspect that if he'd done that maybe before the pandemic, most of those people would have stayed. But we now are waking up and smelling the proverbial coffee and realizing that there are, you know, you can work hard, you can strive, you can be an incredibly successful entrepreneur. You don't have to make yourself or everyone else sleep under their desk, right? There's a balance to be struck here. It is so true. Okay, so it, I think we've got an opportunity here for sure in culture to just make those kind of lines in the sand in our own circles. But, you know, certainly the example you gave of Elon Musk is absolutely right, spot on. So ta- let's go through, if people haven't run across this enough, let's just go through some places where we can think about this more in our lives. Like there's slow cities, slow medicines, slow, slowing down our children's lives. Let's, let's take it from the top. Talk to me about what slow cities are. Yeah, well, slow cities is actually an official movement that started in Italy and has spread around the world. I think there's about 300 now official slow cities. And what they are, they're, they have to be have 50,000 or fewer inhabitants. And then once they tick that box, they've got 72, I think, other changes they need to make in the way they run the city. That the, the idea is that you're creating a city that puts people before profit, that puts quality of life before before everything else, right? So the idea is you create an environment where everyone can, everyone of all economic levels can slow down and smell the proverbial purposes, right? Uh, so they will close roads to traffic or promote local cuisine and local culture, look after the environment, just do all those things that often get thrown over the side of the boat, you know, when we get our, into our tunnel vision of speed. And it's about quality of life. And that's for s- small cities that can join that movement. Bigger cities like London or near New York have taken on some of the same changes. I mean, wherever you go now, you will find in big cities, public networks of bicycles that you can rent, right, on the spot. So you're changing the dynamic, the energy of the city by introducing people on two wheels, on bicycles, moving themselves around the urban landscape at a more gentle pace. And that I see that in London has changed a lot, the way traffic moves and stuff. So whatever size the city you live in, whoever your mayor is, whatever, you know, there are things that we can all do in our own communities to create an environment that fosters a slower approach to the world. Definitely. Lovely. Okay. So what about slow medicine? I hadn't heard, I just hadn't thought of it in terms of this movement. Slow medicine has, I guess, I mean, there's so many, a couple of strands of that. The first is, you know, the rise of traditional forms of medicine, whether it's acupuncture or massage or aromatherapy or all these things that go back to traditional medicines and so on that have obviously had, have clearly many of them have an effect to some extent. And there's a whole argument about whether some of it's placebo, da, da, da. but some of these things do work clearly. And so I think the fact that the alternative medicine industry is now worth billions and billions shows you that there is definitely something there. I think also conventional Western medicine has embraced the idea of slowing down as well. One standout example is just simply teaching doctors now, which you find at blue chip medical schools more and more, teaching them how to listen, just how to listen to the patient, right? Which seems like such a no-brainer. But how often does it happen? I mean, we've all had the experience. You go see a doctor and he or she is sitting on their desk, one eye on the clock. You've got five minutes to explain, and you're out the door with a prescription for something that you didn't even know. And when doctors actually 
listen, they slow down and listen to the patient, then the patient feels heard. And that's such a crucial first step to healing is feeling that someone has seen you and heard you. And because you relax and then natural healing mechanisms can kick in. And funnily enough, when people do feel heard and relaxed and start kind of almost their own version of healing, you can often get better faster. So I always call this the delicious paradox of slow, (laughs) that by slowing down judiciously at the right moments, not only do you get better results, but often you get them more quickly. (laughs) And that, that example of doctors slowing down and listening is a classic example. Classic, classic. Okay. Then there's this, probably, I'm not sure if it's called this, but this way of thinking about parenting, mm-hmm. slow parenting. And I know we're going to direct people to your TED Talk and they'll hear this story and I know you have to tell it all the time. You didn't always start out this way. Tell us your, how you kind of wound up with this notion and how it relates to parenting. And then we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I guess my the whole origin story for me when it comes to slowing down started in my son's bedroom back when he was three, four, I just couldn't slow down at bedtime. So I would go into his room and I'd be speed reading Snow White, skipping lines, paragraphs. I became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn technique, which, you know, you try to sneak one, two or three, and it never works because these kids know the stories back to front. My son would always catch me. He'd say, you know, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in Snow White tonight? You know, what happened to Grumpy? And actually, this lamentable state of affairs went on for quite some time until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White in 60 Seconds. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. I hate that book now. Amazon, drone delivery. But then, thankfully, I didn't buy the book. I had a second thought, and it was just, whoa, you know, what if what's happened to you? You are racing through your life instead of living it. And that for me was, that was hitting rock bottom. And I realized then that I I had to slow down. And I think for a lot of people, the fact that it was my son who taught me that lesson in a way, almost without having to teach it, just by being a small child, is a reminder of how, what's happened to parenting, right? That we've, for a lot of parents, I think, Parenting has become a cross between a competitive sport and product development. Like there's just, and family life is a never ending carousel of activities and people are rushing from pillar to post. And it's just fast parenting. It's fast families. And the evidence is all around us that this doesn't work, that children actually need slowness. They need to play freely. They need to explore the world on their own terms at their own pace. They need to get bored even, right? We're also terrified of boredom nowadays, but throughout human history. And I remember this one, I'm 54 now, right? So when I was a kid, you got bored. You said to your mom, I'm bored. That was your problem, right? (laughs) Your mom would say, well, too bad. Go outside and play or find a friend. Or they would use that eternal expression, use your imagination. (laughs) Now, what happens when a child tells a parent they're bored? Well, the parent says, oh no, my kid's bored. I'm failing as a parent. Where's the iPad? Maybe we need another extracurricular activity. No, you need to do in that moment is slow down, back off and let the boredom happen. Because it's precisely in those moments of unstructured time, of not knowing what's coming next, of not having a timetable or a target or a test, in moments of boredom, the children learn how to think, play, create, enjoy the moment, use their imagination, right? It's when they learn how to be fully formed human beings. And so because that is a universal truth, what I've put to you there, there's been a massive backlash against this whole fast family, fast parenting approach. So the whole slow education, slow parenting, slow has just taken off around the world. Because this is a global problem. This is not confined to the United States, right? This virus of hurry culture, and it's infected parenting everywhere. So 
The, the upside, of course, is pushback is upon us. And people are more and more saying, especially since the pandemic, people are saying, you know what? It was such a relief not having 12 extracurricular activities to go to. <laughs> I really enjoyed just playing Monopoly or baking a cake or having movie night and curling up on the sofa with some popcorn. Right? And so people are going back to having some of those slow moments, still striving to do well academically. Of course, that's important as well. But getting the right balance. Absolutely. I think that, you know, if we all think about that that aspect of the pandemic, it doesn't take very long to go, maybe we should make sure we don't lose that that we learned about spending time with tranquility and a little grace and patience with each other. Talk to me about that in these relationships. You know, we do give our phones so much attention and then we think nothing of our kid. You know, when I go to a restaurant and I see some kid sitting there with an iPad at the dinner table, it just kills me. It just kills me because by accident, we're just a family of food lovers and cooks, just in all sides of my family. Yes. And so food is like sacred and mealtimes are sacred. It's, It's how we grew up. And so we continue that. So what about this really looking for opportunity for some tranquility and some grace and just common conversation in, I love, in I meals love and around food? I love the fact that you use the word sacred there because I think that's something else that we sacrifice when we get stuck in roadrunner mode is, is the whole point of sanctity or something being sacred is that it requires slowness, right? You cannot, if, if, as soon as everything becomes fast, it becomes a commodity. It becomes globalized. It becomes disposable. And sac- the sacraments, right? Those are the complete opposite of that, right? You don't download them from Amazon or get a two-for-one deal on, on, on the sacred, right? You have to surrender yourself to the rhythms and the magic and the music of the moment. Otherwise, nothing happens, right? Otherwise, you're just ticking a box. And I think that's something that people find right away. They begin to feel that when they slow down, that, that life has more depth and texture and color and it has a kind of sacred quality, I think, to it, slowness. And that's be- that explains why every religion has slowness at its core. You think of the Bible, be still and know that I am God, or the Sabbath is the ultimate expression of slowness, right? Or prayer is another expression of slowness. It's all there, right? So it's all tied up with what's sacred. And I think that's something that all human beings need. We need something that's transcendent, something that's sacred. And I think slowness is such a good way to get there. Coming back to the idea of relationships. I mean, let's be honest here. Nobody lies on their deathbed and looks back and thinks, I wish I'd spent more time on social media, right? Or shopping. We just, or in the office, right? What do you remember at the end when you look back? What's given real meaning to your life? It's so small, little, slow moments. It's that long lunch you had with your grandmother in the backyard a week before she died, right? It's, it's the reading of bedtime stories to your small children. It's those meals you break, you know, the times you broke bread together with your family. It's the sunsets you watched on holiday together. You know, it's all that slow stuff. That's what we remember. That's what really matters. And it's slowness. That slowness is the key that opens the magic box to all of that, right? Is it the way we think of time itself that's getting us, tripping us up? I think so. I think that's one of the roots of this roadrunner culture is that we have a deeply warped and neurotic version of time, right? We see it as, we almost see it as the enemy, as the enemy to be conquered and tamed, or as a limited resource that must be exploited and every last bit of productive activity squeezed out of it. And that just sets us up for the worst kind of failure, right? Because people often say to me, well, I can't slow down because if I slow down, life will pass me by. And my retort is always the opposite. Life is what's happening right here 
right now. And the only way to live it fully and get the most from it is to slow down into it, right? So you've got to flip the equation completely 180 degrees so that you start thinking about time not as a rival, right? Or a, that you're in a foot race with time. You, you almost, I think of it as you, you think of, begin to think of time as the element that you're, you're floating around in, that you're living in. It's like oxygen, the air you breathe. It's just, it's constantly there. It's always renewing itself, even as it flows away. It's like some, some traditional cultures, often Eastern cultures think of time as cyclical, right? You know, it's, as it flows away from you, it's renewing itself. And I think even that kind of image can make us feel less anxious, less fraught, less terrified of that. But because, of course, in the West, we think of time as linear, right? Time's arrow right. flying remorselessly from A to B and so on. And that just creates panic where you think, oh, no, I've got to... Or even just think of that expression, time is money, right? Which are even words that have come to define every single thing we do, right? It started in the yes. workplace, but it's just spilled out into every corner of human endeavor. And that phrase sounds so modern, right? It sounds very 21st century, we say it all the time, and yet it, it came from Benjamin Franklin, right, 250 years ago. Almost the phrase that defined the modern era, the idea that you must not waste time. And I think that is such a toxic, poisonous notion, that of wasting time, because it's got tied up with productivity and consumption. And yeah. those things, in my view, are very often the best way to waste time is to try and consume yes. more or turn something that is not a productive activity into one that seems productive. And that's really wasting time. So it's about using time more wisely, I suppose, when you talk about slow in general. It's about saying, how can I, whatever I'm doing, whether it's work or a meal or a conversation with someone I don't know that well, you know, how can I come to that and show up completely, right? To make the most of that moment. That's how you use time wisely. And the way to do that, I said it all the way through the interview, is to slow down, right? It's not, in a way, it's not like it's it's right there for us. It's been there in our culture forever, the idea of slowing down. Yes. And arguably at some points in our history, it was, you know, think about it. I think women used to spend like seven hours a day washing clothes. So there now, was, we spend, like, now we spend seven hours a day on social media. So, you know, right. Progress? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right. I want to turn people on to something related to what Carl and I are talking about right now. We interviewed Oliver Berkman. That's episode 83 at the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. <laughs> he was a time management guru for The Guardian for 10 years until one day he was walking on the beach with his four-year-old son. And the four-year-old son had all the observations about the world going on in this wonderful yak. And he realized that he was still playing out the bad news that he heard in the morning. Mm. that morning in his head and he wasn't even present for his four-year-old in this glorious moment and i think it that reminds me to ask you about how important it is for us to really be conscious about what we give our attention to and when because in this slowing down we we have a moment to pause and decide what to give our attention to how does that relate to a slow movement that, that is right at the core of everything that i'm talking about that we're talking about here, I think, is essentially I mean, the phrase that you hear bandied around a lot of the culture is the attention economy, right? It's the ideas people are trying to get your attention. You have a fixed amount of attention. You've got to choose how to apportion it wisely. And I find that a slightly depressing, reductionist view of the human condition. <laughs> but I think it is useful as a concept because in a sense, we do have limited attention, right? For every moment, you can, you've got 100% of your attention you can bring to the table. And I would argue that you're going to get more out of whatever it is you're doing the more attention you bring to it. 
And so by slowing down, by which I mean bringing your attention, focusing on one thing at a time, that's how you light up that moment. So I think being present, bringing all your attention, slowing down, in some ways, what we're talking about is the same thing. It's like a Venn diagram, just different language (laughs) to arrive at that sweet spot in the middle where we show up 100%. And whatever it is we're doing, whether it's writing a work work email or walking down the beach with our son as he muses on the wonders of the world, that we are there fully. And that sounds simple. It should be simple, but it's hard to do in a world that militates against it, that tells you and almost pushes you to do the exact opposite. But we can do it. It is there within all of our reach and grasp to get away from the kind of attention deficit economy and culture we live into a full attention culture. All right. Since we're talking about full attention, here's an observation that I want to run by you to see what your take is. So I'm also concerned that we're not giving our attention to things that have big consequences because we're zooming along. Like I was back at the family. I come talking to you from Vermont near Montreal, but I come from a farm in Illinois where where my sister over coffee is just sitting there telling me all about the new movement that area is for our community to accept all the CO2 that's being produced all over the country and let it be kind of the opposite of fracting shoved into the ground underneath our county. And somehow that's going to create jobs and money and all this. And of course, she has a clever mind and she was saying, I'm not sure this is a good idea for us to our county just to make short-term money to accept all the CO2 in, <laughs> that's being created. But, you know, she says, but I don't have time to go to the county board meetings. Now, if wow, she doesn't yeah. go, she's smart. She's yeah. an orthodontist, was first in her class all the way through college. She knows some science enough to argue as an ordinary person at this meeting. Like, what are we not paying attention to as far as how we consume? Like, are we doing the homework before we spend our money with this company versus that? If we're just zooming by our shopping, like, couldn't we give our money to companies that are making the world a better place if we did just a little bit of homework before we buy what's happening politically in our area that probably somebody should speak up about? There's like a reality check to there is not spending our time doing some things and paying attention, deep attention to things that affect our future in the big picture as citizens, as communities. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a connection there. In one sense, what you're talking about is I mean, we've been talking about how when things get too fast and no one's sure of anything and everything's going up blur, it's very hard to make good individual decisions, right? You're going to make bad decisions. That's it's when you're in a rush that you eat some junk food, right? It's that's when you make the bad decisions. You go for the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens at the collective level. Collectively, we're making really bad decisions in so many fears, I think, because we're not taking time, right? Because when you don't take time, when you arrive with that hurried, distracted, anxious, amped up spirit, you go for the low-hanging fruit. You go for the short, quick fix. And what we really need now across the board is a slow fix, right? We need slow fi- We need to slow fix our whole approach to energy consumption, to the way we make clothes and where the, the, to the way we travel, to the way we eat, all these things need a deep pause and a deep rethink and reinvention. But of course, if everybody's rushing around thinking, well, I got to pick the kids up at 4.30 and, or, you know, my next Netflix series starts in an hour, we're never going to get there. That's the trouble. So there, that's where this really worrying disconnect occurs, right? But, you know, there's always a, an optimistic part here. I do think that 
and I, I feel, and it's a hard thing to measure, there's no metric or micrometer that measures it, but I feel like since the pandemic, people are, more and more people, especially young people, are taking the time to ask those hard questions and to accept that there's not necessarily going to be an instant, fast answer. The slow fix takes time to, not only to put into practice, but to work out what it actually is, right? You need to sit with mm. uncertainty and doubt and exist in that liminal space between knowing and not knowing. That's where so much incredible fertile thinking and breakthrough creative thoughts happen. That's where artists come up with works that transform culture and last for centuries, right? It's in that place of not entirely knowing. And we're so terrified not knowing something. We want everything rendered in a spreadsheet or show me the numbers, put it in an algorithm, get it into a PowerPoint slide. But so much of the best thinking, so many of the best decisions so much the greatest and deepest, richest wisdom comes through a phase of not knowing till you get to the other side. And maybe you never know everything completely, but that is that kind of state requires slowness. It requires patience. And I see more and more people finding the patience to do it, but we don't have enough people just yet. Let's be honest. We need more of yeah. us to get there. Yeah. Something I've noticed in the millennial generation and Gen Z my whole team at the Goodness Exchange are millennials and Gen Z. And man, they are militant about when they're done at 5.15, they do not answer an email from Dr. Linda. <laughs> for that. That ring it on, I say. And, yeah. and my daughter, who's my co-founder of the Goodness Exchange, she has a very, very, I would say healthy, although <laughs> to me sometimes frustrating, attitude about what she does on the weekend and what I'm allowed to contact her about related to the goodness exchange. And boy, I think it's really taught me a lot. And sometimes when I look at the labor shortage in the United States, I don't know how this applies to the rest of the world. I'm wondering if we are just really suffering a shortage of people who are willing to work the 70 hour work week anymore. I think that's a big part of it, that the whole work culture that we have. They're unwilling. They're unwilling to work the 70 hour work week anymore. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think that, yeah, whether it's a 70 hour week or the work, the work week, which never actually ends, right? Because you go home and you're tethered to the office by emails and Slack chats and so on. Yeah. It's just not nourishing. It's actually not even good for the bottom line, right? It's bad for productivity. It erodes creativity. It kills off collaboration. But the whole work industrial complex is pushed in that direction. Thank goodness we've got this new generation coming up and just saying, you know what? Absolutely. I'm not going to play that game anymore. You know, I'm looking at, they're looking at us, looking at our generation and thinking, do I want to sacrifice my dignity, my soul, my health, my dreams on the altar of what? A career that could be pulled out from under my feet tomorrow, a pension pot that could just evaporate next week. You know, they're thinking, no, I'm, there are other things that I'm going to put first here and more power to them, right? That's how we're going to bring about a better world is that kind of thing came not more of the 70 hour elon musk work weeks no and you know that's just a, a lovely way to start wrapping up our conversation here because i see there is so much hope we are evolving it's two steps forward one step back in almost every aspect of this tired world that we're at but you know back to the fact that you started pointing us all in this direction with this marvelous ted talk in 2005 and think about that Social media didn't really exist then. The negative news cycle wasn't the thing, like the 24-hour. And of course, we didn't have any idea there would be a pandemic in a league. So I just love the way this movement, I have to tell people, look for this in your life. 
this slow movement and you're going to find it. I'm a bird nerd. And I had a patient in the dental practice the other day tell me that that's what she does on the side. She works for a wildlife refuge, but she teaches slow birding on the side. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. What a beautiful, I want people to think about this in terms of their own hobbies, their own loves, whether it's art or what have you. Gosh, we could have talked about everything under the sun so far in this, but slow birding is, you know, the reason why people don't become birders very often is that they just don't want to just go chasing through the woods and branches, all that. No, slow birding is just sitting on your deck and learning to listen. There's some great apps that you can know exactly what bird is singing behind you and just enjoying with a pair of binoculars on your deck, maybe a gin and tonic, and being slow about the little creatures that are visiting your view. And I think that's the way we could look at cooking and travel. Gosh, slow travel. Carl, we can't finish this interview without getting your thoughts on slow travel. What does that mean? Uh, I, I guess it's enjoying the journey, right? It's celebrating the journey rather than freaking about it, about getting to the destination as fast as possible. And it's, you know, it's the art of, it's the art of travel, right? Remembering the travel is an art. It's not, you know, not a work chore that you can speed up as fast. You know, it's about firing up your five senses and bringing your whole self to the journey, right? So that whatever it is you encounter becomes part of the tapestry that you weave of that journey, right? And I just think that if you do slow down, if you move through the world at a slower pace with a slow spirit, you, sh- you turn up with an open heart and a curious mind, then you can turn any journey, right? You don't have to be floating down the Nile. Or you can go any journey can become a bomb for the soul and a banquet for the senses. It's all there for all of us. And, the, and that, well, my most recent book is a children's book called It's the journey, not the destination, which is uh, all about traveling slowly through the world and starting with children, right? Because I think the earlier we can start inculcating this idea of slowness as a superpower, the better the world will be, right? So what better way than to start with bedtime stories? So in a way, way, I've come full circle, right? Writing my own bedtime stories now. Absolutely. And I don't want, we could go on about this and how it works if we can create a slow movement starting when we're, our children are little and make sure it's propagated in schools and in things like homework and after school activities. That's a whole, that's a whole episode right there, which maybe we will do. <laughs> okay. Because I have to tell people we are planning an episode two with Carl on this other amazing topic that he speaks about which is aging and our attitudes towards aging. And I've heard Carl speak about this now quite a little bit. And it's not just about being old. It's about how we feel when we go from age 29 to 31. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, it's not just about being over 50. There is there is a, a great comment that Carl made is, wisdom is experience metabolized. So you got to have time to metabolize your experience so that you can make it a part of you and what you bring to the world every day. And I can't wait to talk to you about that. So hang on. We're going to do an episode two with Carl soon on this topic of aging. Okay. So to wrap up today, there's two questions I always like to ask people at the end. Carl, one is, what do you really wish people knew? Like, you know, but all you're doing, do you catch yourself sometimes saying, I wish I, you know, you see something in the newspaper, you look at what's happening around you and you go, oh, I wish people really knew what? I mean, there's there's so many things, but the thing that comes to mind first is, well, I'll share my 
favorite quote from Anne Landers, the legendary agony aunt, who said once, this is talking about the, one of the upsides of aging. She said, at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what they're thinking of us. And at 60, we realize they were never thinking of us at all, right? <laughs> Which gets at that kind of lightness or freedom, I think, that comes upon us in later life when we feel less beholden to other people's expectations and opinions. And I guess that's what I would love people to know. I would love myself to have known this in my 20s, that people are not watching you like a hawk and scrutinizing no. everything you do, sitting in judgment constantly. They're basically not even, they're more wrapped up in their own stuff to be worried about you. And I just think that taking that pressure off people allows, it just gives you so much more oxygen, so much more space to be yourself, you know, burnish yourself. So that would be the thing I'd like people to know more that it's okay. You're not, yeah. people are not wandering around judging you constantly. You've got a lot of space to mess up, screw up, do stupid stuff. It's okay. It'll be okay. So that would be my, that'd be my take on it. And to slow down. I mean, think how much we are racing through time because of what we think other people are thinking. Well, that comes like, full circle, doesn't it? Because that's one of the reasons yes. we go so fast is the expectation that other people expect us to go too fast. Yeah. And if you just take that expectation off the table, then the chances are slowing down is going to feel a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then the second question I love for the thought leaders on the Goodness Exchange to address is, so what's your vision? Like, I know I keep going every day with the Goodness Exchange for 10 years because I can see a world where what we write about and the people we interview and the content on the Goodness Exchange, if people only knew that that version of each other and reality and the world is sitting there just waiting for us. I can see a world where if people knew we celebrate as the content of the Goodness Exchange, oh, what a world that would be. We would mm, counsel yeah. our children different. We would do business differently. So think about your insights and your observations, your lived experience with time and slowing down. What could the world look like if let's say many or most of us understood this? Yeah. Well, I think there's this whole laundry list of benefits. I think we would be, you know, it would be, be a cleaner world. It'd be a more healthy, natural world. We'd be happier. We'd be so much, you know, more productive. We'd be more creative. We, we just, so many things would be, would be of benefit to us by slowing down. But the one that I, I want to pluck at particularly is that we'd be, that we would have greater solidarity, right? We'd be, have more human connection. Cause I think that's something that that's one of the main things we lose in this roadrunner living is the connection to other people. And there's a great old proverb, which says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think that's a reminder of how, when we slow down, we find ourselves, we find other people, and we find our better angels. That is an absolutely perfect place to land here at the end of part one of our conversation with Carl Honoré. Thank you so, so much, Carl, for joining us. Where should people go next in your point of view? Again, at the Goodness Exchange on the article there, we're going to have no end to the links yeah. to all kinds of things. But where do you recommend people go next um, well, to connect I mean, with your work? Fine. I just have, I have one link which takes you to a link tree with all my links. So that, that has books and videos and audios and courses and you name it, more than you could ever want to know about me and my work. And it's my name without any punctuation. So info. So info, and it's all there, an endless smorgasbord of me and all the stuff I've been doing for the last 20 years. 
And of course, if you hear this after January 9th in 2023, you're going to be able to find a course at TED.com. Where, how will that be? What do they search on TED.com? Well, it's easy. I have a link to that course on Okay. My, okay, great. You can go there. Perfect. You can sign up for the first okay. course starts on January 9th and runs for four weeks. And the next one will start sometime in February and it goes on from there. But the first one is January 9th. So if you want to be in a, great. on ground zero, <laughs> January okay. 9th. Oh, that is so lovely. Okay. So thank you so much. I hope the, I hope you'll visit the goodness exchange where this interview will live forever with all the links. And I suppose we'll keep adding to getting Carl's work out in the world. There's going to be a video library there at the goodness exchange where you'll be able to see clips from this interview. I, I, Carl, I have to say, I've got so many notes here from moments when you said something that were, that was super inspiring that I want to remember. So we're going to create lots of clips from this interview that people can go back and be reminded of the moments that just hit them right where they live in their head and heart. I hope all the connections that that Carl and I brought to you today to goodness and progress will carry you through the week and you'll start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Have a great day. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Been a treat from start to finish. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.